0: park united methodist church in tampa florida this is the bible project 2020 a journey to reading the bible without fear or frustration i'm monica Largesse, your host today on this week's episode matt hotho and steve crawford discuss corinthians with dr jill marshall dr marshall is a scholar of new testament and a historian of early christianity you'll get more of her academic life in the episode the conversation gives context to the church in Corinth and Paul's relationship to them. They go on to discuss the nature of Paul's authority and how the Corinthians would have approached lawfulness in their church. The end focuses on some of the text modern readers may struggle with the most. Now on to the episode.
1: We are truly blessed and fortunate to have Dr. Jill E. Marshall as our guest for this week's podcast, as we discuss Paul's letters to the Church of God in Corinth. Welcome, Dr. Marshall. Thank you. First, let me share some, and I must say some because there's an awful lot here that is remarkable, information about Dr. Marshall. She graduated magna cum laude from Vanderbilt University. She has her Master's in Theological Studies from Candler School of Theology at Emory University, also has another theological master's from Columbia Theological Seminary, and then back to Emory for her Ph.D., the Graduate Division of Religion. Dr. Marshall, we are very glad to have you with us. Let me also add that um, she is a scholar of New Testament and a historian of early Christianity. She works for the American Academy of Religion, and just as important with her exceptional scholarship, Dr. Jill Marshall likes to dig. She's an experienced archaeological researcher, has been out on a number of digs, as we call them, and we appreciate her practical experience. I would also add some icing to the cake. Dr. Marshall speaks English, German, and French, and is proficient in the research languages of ancient Greek, Latin, biblical Hebrew, and Aramaic. And with that introduction... Let me ask this. How many letters did Paul actually write to the Corinthians? Two, three, or four? Or do we know?
2: Well, thank you for that question, and thank you for the wonderful introduction. Do feel free to call me Jill. Um, (laughs) uh, We can can be informal here. Um, So, yeah, so your first question about how many letters did Paul write to the Corinthians? Of course, we have in the New Testament two letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Um, But there are several places within those two documents where Paul refers to other letters. Um, So in 1 Corinthians 5, he refers to a previous letter that he wrote to Paul. the Corinthians, we might call that zero Corinthians, um, but and but that's not a letter that is extant. We do not have that letter. Um, also, in First Corinthians, Paul mentions um, a letter that they have written to him, um, and he is answering some questions from that letter uh, in his in, in the letter that we have that we call First Corinthians. Um, so we have at least. Two correspondences prior to 1 Corinthians, one from him, one from them. And then, of course, we have 1 Corinthians, which is a complete letter, um, a whole letter. Um, and then in 2 Corinthians, Paul mentions uh, a tearful letter, a letter of tears. He, he, he mentions this in 2 Corinthians 7. Um, and presumably that is that comes somewhere in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Um, And then finally we have 2 Corinthians um, and there are a whole host of um, theories about how many letters are actually in 2 Corinthians. Um, A lot of scholars uh, think that there are multiple letters kind of squashed together in this one document that we have. And those theories range from Two letters to five letters, mm. um, but in any case, it's it's very clear between First uh, Corinthians and Second Corinthians that we have an extended conversation between Paul and this community, um, and that's very that's unique because um, with most of the churches that he writes to, we have one maybe two letters, um, but here we have evidence of this kind of back and forth, working through problems, working through big ideas um, in a kind of iterative fashion.
1: All right. Tell us a little bit about the city of Corinth back during the time that these letters were written.
2: Yeah. So um, Corinth is one of those places where I I haven't actually um, excavated at Corinth, but I have spent a lot of time at the site there. Um, So I do love to talk about Corinth. Um, so Corinth is at a very strategic location. It's at a crossroads. Um, it is on the Isthmus in Greece, which is a little strip of land that connects, um, the Northern mainland of Greece to the Peloponnese, the, the peninsula that kind of juts out into the Mediterranean. And so that location means that it's at a kind of a, a critical North South, um, uh, crossroads between northern Greece and, and the Peloponnese, as well as a, a critical east west um, crossroads between the Aegean, and, which, which on to the east, which takes you to Asia Minor, to Ephesus, which is an important place for Paul, um, and to the west to uh, Italy and Rome. Um, so Corinth was a big kind of uh, t- trading place, a big um, there are two kind of ports associated with Corinth can create to the east and Machayan to the west. Um, and so you do have a lot of trade, a lot of different kinds of people going in and out. The other important thing to know about Corinth is that it is um, distinct in that it has kind of two very distinct Periods to its history that I think inform the the first century and inform the time that Paul is writing. So the Greek city of Corinth was established in eighth seventh century BCE, and it existed until one forty six uh, BCE, which is when the Romans destroyed it. Julius Caesar established a Roman colony on the ruins of Corinth. Mm. Um, And uh, a a large part of the population um, that was kind of moved to that colony were um, freed slaves. Um, So... There's a lot of debate among archeologists in particular about how much continuity and change existed from the Greek city to the Roman city. Um, There there are some Greek temples for instance that are are kind of revived in the Roman period and then other Roman uh, temples and and cults and and, um, public buildings that, that are added. Um, So how Greek is the city, how Roman is the city is a, is a big question. Um, And, and also, I mean, the fact that we have a city where uh, freed slaves were an important part of the population. And I think, you know, the, the places in, in first Corinthians, especially where Paul mentions slavery, that, that population Mm -hmm. is there and um, they have, experiences of what Paul is talking about, Um, and so that's something to keep in mind as, as we read Paul's comments on slavery.
1: Okay, so Paul gives the church at Corinth a lot of advice on a lot of subjects, and yet Paul is not an apostle. He wasn't with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Is Paul's advice based solely on hearsay, what he knew from other people, or does he have some sort of claim and insights that make us value his letters the way we do.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think uh, Paul would heartily disagree with your statement that he's not an apostle. I mean, that is one thing that he really insists upon is that he is an apostle. He is sent with this, this message um, about uh, God, Christ, the gospel. Um, now in, in, in terms of, you um, hearsay and where he gets his information, um, I think you can ask that question in, in two ways. Where does he get his information about Corinth and the Corinthians? And where does he give his get his teachings, his, his traditions, as he sometimes calls them? Um, in in terms of, of Jesus's teachings, like what we kind of read in the Gospels, Paul doesn't really mention anything there, there's one there there are a couple of places where he clearly refers to Jesus's teachings and one is in his discussion of marriage and divorce um, but but probably the the number of times that Paul refers specifically to a teaching of Jesus is very few and I think his understanding of Jesus is um, is not as Jesus, but as Christ, as the Lord, mm. um, and and he he understands the event of the cross and the event of resurrection as being completely life changing for him, and that is what gives him his authority. Paul is in Ephesus when he 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 writes First uh, cor- uh, Corinthians, and he has some visitors who are telling him about some of the problems that are going on in the city, in this community, in the city since he left. But then we also have Paul's references to letters, um, to a letter uh, where he, in, in uh, chapter seven, he says, now concerning the things that you have written. So so he's gotten some kind of hearsay about what's going on there, but he's also gotten a letter where they're asking very specific things and he strives to answer those specific things the best he knows. And uh, his authority, I think, for the Corinthians comes from him being the, the founder of this church, of this this community in Corinth. So he is their father and, and he uses that language in 1 Corinthians. And so that gives him his, his authority to... Uh, guide them on both kind of these big, weighty theological questions, as well as these more practical in the dirt type questions.
1: Let me uh, point specifically um, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 through chapter 11, verse 1, where Paul writes about what I call the limits of Christian freedom. He Mm -hmm. states quote, all things are allowed to me, close quote, but instructs us to always consider our colleagues or who we're with before we choose what to eat or what to say or how to act. So I guess my question to you is, do we always do what the Romans do when we're in Rome?
2: Or the Corinthians do when we're in Corinth? There you go. Um, yeah, so so the the passage that you mentioned, 10 uh, 23 through eleven one, um, this is the conclusion to a much longer section of the letter that begins in in chapter eight. And this whole issue that the Corinthians have is whether they can eat uh, meat, that has been offered to idols, whether they can eat meat in the temples in Corinth. Um, And so what's interesting about this whole section is that Paul kind of poses this question in various ways and he responds to um, their concerns by kind of saying, well, yeah, these gods in these temples they're nothing, they they are not our God. We know the the true God. And so therefore these gods are, are, they don't exist. And therefore the meat that is sacrificed to them is not changed in any way. It's not tainted for us. Um, and, and something to keep in mind here is that in the ancient world, the place where you got meat is at the temple. Um, uh, from sacrificial offerings, um, and so you know, for some people in Corinth, they were probably used to going to the temples to get meat to have meals. This was a big kind of social thing as well. You you form networks and connections over dinner um, in the temple of um, of Apollo or Demeter or whatever, um, and so. He asserts that these gods aren't real gods, and this meat isn't tainted in any way. So theoretically, yes, you can eat it. But he says, there are people within the community who have a problem with it. And they are bothered by... Um, the idea that they're kind of brothers and sisters in Christ would eat meat that's offered to Apollo or, or whatever. And so he says that the, the, that's where there is a limit to all things are lawful, um, that when what you do is negatively affecting your brothers and sisters, that that's a bigger problem than Um, then the benefit of eating in the temple.
1: So So it's sort of like if you place a stumbling block in front of your brother and sister's pathway, that's what you need to avoid.
2: Right. And he, he, he uses the term stumbling block at some point in this letter, maybe in this context, um, uh, but yeah, and and so, you know, a lot of people, a lot of scholars suggest that this phrase "all things are lawful to me" or "all things are permitted to me" is a kind of slogan that the Corinthians have picked up to kind of express this idea that now that they are in Christ, they are free to do um, anything. That 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 resurrection has given given them a kind of freedom.
1: So this was the bumper sticker you would see on the ox cart in Carth.
2: (laughs) Right. Yeah. All things are lawful to me. He's kind of saying, okay, this yes, you do have freedom. Yes, you do have liberty. But as soon as that freedom and liberty kind of encroaches on someone else and harms someone else, then it's it's no good. It's useless.
1: Let's focus on First Corinthians chapter eleven, verses Mm -hmm. two through sixteen. And I must tell you, uh, this is a very controversial, if you, you know, read it literally and what it says on its face, as you know. Um, But let me ask Matt, go ahead and read verses 2 through 16 of chapter 11, if you would, please.
3: I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions just as I handed them on to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the husband is the head of his wife. And God is the head of Christ. Any man who prays or prophecies with something on his head disgraces his head. But any woman who prays or prophecies with her head unveiled disgraces her head. It is one and the same thing as having her head shaved. For if a woman will not veil herself, then she should cut off her hair. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or to be shaved, she should wear a veil. For a man ought not to have his head veiled, since he is the image and reflection of God, but woman is the reflection of man. Indeed, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. For this reason, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, or man independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman. But all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head unveiled? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is degrading to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone is disposed to be contentious, we have no such customs, nor do the churches of God."
1: Well, Dr. Marshall, help.
2: <laughs> yeah, so um, one thing that I would say about this passage is that it is okay to be confused by this because a lot of it just doesn't make much sense. Um, and a lot of it is contradictory and internally, but also with other things Paul says in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere. Um so I, I think it's, it's not always necessary to read a passage like this and say, all right, what do I take away from this? What should I do? What should we do? Um, I think this is a, an example where Paul doesn't really give a clear answer to what should we do? What, what is, what is the, the issue? What is the, the solution? the passage starts out off with, um, a reference to traditions. Um, and when Paul talks about traditions, he's talking about things that he has taught his communities and they may be things that existed before him. Um, but they may also be just his, his teachings. And so he is kind of grounding this in what he has taught them before. And this is, this is another way that we kind of don't have the full picture. Because whenever Paul talks about what he has taught them, he is dependent on them knowing what he has taught them. And so whenever you're dependent on somebody being on the same page as you, you you don't have to spell out everything. And so I think there, there are a lot of kind of Uh, Things that he's not saying here that would help us a lot to understand Mm -hmm. what he's saying that the Corinthians might know or might have a better uh, sense of. The the other thing that I find interesting about this this passage and and why it's been kind of such an important part of my work is that it introduces uh, the activity of praying and prophesying um i think uh, and this comes up in in verses uh, 4 and 5 so so the activity of praying and prophesying first comes up at this point in the letter and people often miss that because they're so focused on the gender issue and the the head covering veil whatever you know my view of paul <clears throat> is that he's he's a human and he is someone who is dealing with problems in a community that's far away from him. And he's someone who is influenced by his kind of big theological vision as much as he's influenced by his kind of cultural preconceptions of men and women.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, And so I think, you know, he has this, you know, uh, wonderful big idea about mutuality and um, interdependence of men and women and of every part of that community in Corinth. But when it comes down to you know, letting go of cultural commonplaces regarding men and women, he just can't quite do it. Um, and, and I don't think that means that women should be silent in church because I think that he is a human being who wrote letters to a very specific community with very specific problems. And I think the more important thing to do is to see how he works through those problems. So see that process of him grappling with this very practical question um, in a way that can be messy, uh, but in a way that, um, that, that that leads him to a point that we don't necessarily have to take as our starting point. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right. Dr. Jill Marshall, this has been a delight as we knew it would be. Thank you for joining us.
0: What a joy it was to have Jill join us for this week's podcast. We're still worshiping online, Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. You can join us on Facebook or at hydeparkumc.org slash live. You can also connect with us on Facebook. Search for The Bible Project 2020 and request to join. Matt Hotho produced this episode and I edited it. I'm Monica Largesse. See you next week.